Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. You're listening to a special episode recorded at the URJ Biennial in December of 2019. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast, where it is my great pleasure to introduce Sarah Hurwitz. From 2009 to 2017, Sarah Hurwitz served as a White House speechwriter, first as a senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama, and then as head speechwriter for First Lady Michelle Obama. Prior to serving in the Obama administration, Sarah was chief speechwriter for Hillary Clinton on her 2008 presidential campaign. She's the author of Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism after finally choosing to look there. Sarah Woods, thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I want to begin um, with some of the themes that come from your book. You speak of uh, discovering uh, a vast and sophisticated Judaism after you reject, as you describe it, uh, you reject uh, the kind of what we call... um, pediatric Judaism or childish Judaism. And I want to ask you to share with us some of those aspects of depth and sophistication that sparked your your re-engagement. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up with pretty standard 1980s reformed Jewish background of kind of, you know, dull and comprehensible services, Hebrew school, but not much going on at home and had my bat mitzvah and I just walked away. Wasn't much to see there, I thought. Um, I wound up taking an intro course very randomly after a painful breakup, looking for things to do, took this intro to Judaism course, and I was really blown away by the sophistication and edginess of what I found. And I think the two main things that really most struck me were the ethical wisdom and the spiritual wisdom that Judaism offers. As for the ethical wisdom, the bar secular society sets is you do you and be okay generally to others, right? Like don't infringe on others' right. rights. It's sort of lock, uh, lock you. Exactly. Like don't steal their property. Don't assault them. Don't infringe right. on their rights. It's a very low bar, right? It doesn't say be honest, be generous, be kind, be loving, right? It doesn't say show up for people. And I found this much higher bar in Judaism. Just studying the Jewish thinking around speech, around gossip and shaming made me realize how inadvertently and casually cruel I am every day, right? I'm much more conscious of the impact my speech can have on others. I still mess it up a hundred times a day, but I used to mess it up 150 times a day. So we're getting better. (laughs) Um, The thinking around chesed, right? Just this, this ministry of presence that Judaism demands where when someone is sick or in mourning, Judaism doesn't say, well, send flowers, send a text. It says, get yourself to them, right? Be physically present with them. Even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's inconvenient, be there physically with them, which I think is really profound. Um, and, and like watching your tongue hard. And, and hard, right? Demanding. It's very demanding. And it demands a lot more than the secular world does, which is, you know, send a text, buy them something, right? Have a consumer solution to this. Judaism says, no, there actually isn't a consumer solution. Or, you know, fine, you can buy them things, right. but you could can show also up. do those things, right? Right, but it's the, not the key thing is your presence, right? Which, which is hard. It's challenging. It's demanding. And then I think with the theological wisdom, what I found was... Yeah, I grew up thinking, well, the Jewish God is a man in the sky. He rewards you when you're good and punishes you when you're naughty and controls everything. Can I pause you there? Yeah. I want to dig down and, and make sure if, if when you when you use that, if you're not talking, if you're not speaking in shorthand for a kind of oversimplified, you know, be a good person and God wants, or if you really mean specifically that 
you were taught reward, punishment, boom, boom. I was taught nothing about God ever. Ah, okay. Nobody ever had a conversation about God, which is stunning and shouldn't be shocking to us when people, Jews who are looking for spiritual connection, as human beings do, go elsewhere to Buddhism or Burning Man or ayahuasca. They should. If we are not going to meet their spiritual needs, I have no, I, I understand why they leave. So actually, I got nothing taught to me or consciously said about God, but sitting with the sitter in my, my in the, with the Which prayer book. apparently actually tried we, to read. Yeah. I mean, we will look, I showed up twice a year. We had the <laughs> sitter. It had the English translations. It was a reform right. shul. And it was very clear. If you are good, God will bring rain to your fields. If you are bad, God will dry up your fields. Lunatan Tokev, right? Look, read, you know, who shall live and who shall die. Right? This is a very clear it seemed theology. Yeah, fair enough. Which, certainly if you're coming on those two days alone. Exactly, if you're coming on those two days alone. Now, is that the theology of the sitter? Of course not. Right? It's much more complicated than that. And, and Jewish theology is much more complicated than that. If you actually study Unatana Tokef, who will live, uh, God decides who will live and who will die, it quotes most frequently from the book of Job, which, by the way, totally subverts the whole idea of a reward and punishment theology, yeah. right? So, you know, I didn't see any of the theological complexity. And frankly, if you were like most Jews who show up twice a year, you're not going to see it. Right. And it you're going to assume right. that the Jewish God is the man in the sky. It might actually everything. affirmatively veil it. Yes. Which is a bitter irony. It's a bitter irony. And so, you know, but actually learning about Jewish theology and discovering that, oh, there are all these different conceptions of the divine, right? There are the mystics who say that God is everything. You're God. I'm God. The homeless man on the street, that guy is God. Right? It's, a very, it's a profound way to look at your daily life. Martin Buber, who says that God is what arises in deep human relation between two people. Right? When they're fully contemplating each other's humanity, what arises between them is God. There's Mordecai Kaplan. God is the process by which we become our highest, truest selves. I can give you, none of these are literal theology that should be your whole theology, but they're just people with a lot of subtle, sophisticated thinking about God. And that blew my mind. I really thought, well, I don't believe in the man in the sky, so I guess I'm atheist. Or maybe I'm spiritual but not religious. Right. A common formulation. Common formulation, which, like, good for those people, right? I'm, I'm sorry, once you, you – the man in the sky who controls everything, it gets really uh, – breaks down fast. It's like, okay, well, if that's true, then what about the Holocaust? Oh, but people have free will. People perpetuate the Holocaust. Okay, well, what does God do all day? Well, I'm not interested, right? I'm not interested in the mental gymnastics. I find it insulting. But I, fortunately, you don't have to do that in Judaism, right? There are a lot of smart, thoughtful, soulful people who have spent centuries, if not millennia, putting forth a lot of different conceptions of the, of the divine. Can I ask if you have um, encountered more than merely glancingly mm-hmm. other theological systems against which to compare Judaism and the comparison of which may have um, further encouraged you in this understanding of your Jewish theology? I haven't studied other faith traditions, which I think is a real gap in my mm-hmm. knowledge. I actually really well, regret most that. Most of ours, yeah. Yeah, but I really, I think it's important to do, and I, it's sort of on my list of, of things I want to do, um, so I haven't. I can't the compare re- it. The reason I ask is because many people uh, sense in Judaism on a comparative level um, the same thing you do, which is a kind of um, elasticity. Mm. The, the primary uh, Jewish way of being is your first set of comments about ethics and about how we uh, exist in the world as an expression of our divine covenant. And so I think it has promoted some of the flexibility you're talking about, which you have cast not as flexibility, but as dimensionality. Yeah. And I, I love the way you did that because you talk about Kaplan, talk about Buber and the fact yeah. that it's all... And I actually think flexibility is a very good word too, right? I yeah, think that that's, I, that's, I that's, If too. there's a dynamism 
to it. You know, there isn't a, a you know, we don't do systemic theology. We don't have a doctrine yes. or creed of God. And I find that so wise because it reflects a fundamental humility, right? I think when people start telling you that they know what God is and what God does, um, what they're doing is they're actually shrinking God down to this human sized thing that they can control for their own purposes. And it's extraordinarily dangerous, right? And I, I love that Judaism says this is so beyond any one of us to define, to cabin. So we just, we intimate, we gesture to it. I love why more observant friends use the name Hashem for God, which I love, right? The name. It's like, we, we can't even, totally we can't even say the yeah, name. Yeah. We just say the name. It's like, how beautiful, you know? It's, um, uh, it's one of the reasons that people sometimes say that there is no Jewish theology. That, that a theology is a foreign category to the Jewish experience. You're right. There's no systemic one Jewish theology, but there are many, many, many right. theological ideas yes, and intimations. That, absolutely. You know, I, I, think, think that's, I think when people say theology, they, they mean they connote within the word systemic. Exactly. And so when, they, when you deprive it of that, of that qualifier of systemic, then you have this um, kind of beautiful jumble of... Uh, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm reacting to your passion. It's really quite contagious. Yeah. And I love what you're I like. I, I, that's like a really interesting point about how people do when you say theology, they assume systemic. And so they say there's no Jewish theology. And I, I disagree. There's a right. lot of different well, we theologies, have, none we, of which are systemic. Right, we have this highly textured, colorful, vibrant relationship with God. If that's not yes. theology. I mean, whatever. Yes. Right. And it's humble. In an interview with the Washington Post, you spoke about this theme that you raised here now about the... Uh, well, I read it as impenetrability of the High Holiday um, liturgy. But but what you're saying now, it's, it's not actually that it was impenetrable to you. It's that when you read it and tried to work with it, such as it was on the page, it's not that it was impenetrable. It's that it was, it was off-putting. <laughs> it was downright, it was downright um, taking you in, in sort of the wrong direction. Uh, so I want to ask specifically about liturgy, yeah. if you have since found inroads into not only the high holiday liturgy, but really the Sidor in general, because it, it remains dense language, foreign language, and it remains, theologically speaking again, um, distant enough from most of our experience that you have to connect a few dots before you get there. Yes. And I want to know if you, if you agree, and if so, have you been able to connect some of those dots, and if so, what it's yeah. led you to? One of the most frustrating things that people say to me, and it's often, it's rabbis, it's, it's educators, it's people who actually know quite a lot about Judaism. They say, Sarah, just let it wash over you. Let the liturgy wash over you. Just go to have an experience, blah, 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 you know, whatever. It's like, okay, so why don't I go to the Buddha Sangha or the Unitarian Church? Or why don't we just read an Israeli phone book? If this is just <laughs> nonsense that's going to wash over me, why am I bothering? I find it so incredibly condescending mm. and demeaning. We should actually know something about our liturgy and have the opportunity to learn something about our liturgy so that we can work with it as sophisticated, smart adults. So for me, the key to having a meaningful experience with liturgy is learning something. You know, the Rabbi Jeff Roth once said, you know, if you say moda ani and you don't know what means I am thankful, it may take you somewhere, but not necessarily to thankfulness. So I I'm done with the let's all be ignorant and let things wash over us. We're not idiots. What I would like to do is we should have a sense of what could these prayers mean for us, right? What could they mean for us? And I'm not saying have some academic thing of this is the meaning, but it's really sit down and say, hey, let's look at the biblical allusions to this prayer. Yeah. You know, if I'm reading the first blessing of the Amidah and it ends with the phrase shield of Abraham, gee, where does that come from in the Torah? Oh, interesting. It comes 
in the Torah in a moment where God comes to Abraham and says, I'm giving you the promised land. And Abraham does not respond, wow, God, I so believe in you. You're awesome. Thanks. Abraham says, but how shall I know I am to possess it? Generally, if God shows up and, and gives, makes you a promise, you'd think you'd say, thank you. Thank you. Free, right? yeah, exactly. But Abraham's like, I don't believe you. I doubt you. Okay, so we start the Amidah with a moment of profound doubt by our ancestor. Well, that's interesting. Somehow this, this prayer doesn't become groveling, repetitive praise for God. It becomes a little bit of a protest. It's a challenge. I look at the Hashkivenu prayer. Lay over us a, sukkah, a canopy of peace. Mm-hmm. Why do we translate sukkah? It doesn't need a translation. We know what a sukkah is. It is a fragile, open-air structure, which you are totally at the mercy of the elements. And we are praying for peace in that fragile, open-air, totally unsafe space. We don't pray for an underground bunker of peace. We don't pray for a fortified castle of peace, right? What a beautiful prayer and a very real prayer about like, look, we're all at the mercy of the storms and the winds and the rains of our life, and it's scary. And what we're asking for is to be able to have some peace amongst that that difficulty, right? Like, okay, now these prayers are interesting. Now when I say them, I feel something real and moving. So, you know, the way I figured out to work with liturgy is A, to know something about it, and I hate it when people gaslight me as like, oh, it's an intellectual Judaism. No, it's not. Having basic adult knowledge allows me to have a very emotional experience, a really spiritual experience. It's not intellectual. It's not academic. So like learning something, that should be a good thing, not something that we sort of demean. And I also, Rabbi Jordan Ben Dadapel gave me a great piece of advice where he said, Sarah, if you're going to read the Siddur, the Jewish liturgy, prescriptively as prescribing a theology that you must accept or reject, it's not going to go well for you. But if you read it descriptively as a description of our ancestors' hopes, yearnings, fears, joys, sorrows, you could be moved by it. So when I read a prayer that says, that's begging God, like, if we're really good, you'll bring rain for our fields. But if we're naughty and we go to other gods, it'll dry up. Do I believe the theology? No, I don't. I mean, come on. It's disproven on a minute-to-minute basis. But can I identify with the fear and the yearning and just the longing for control? I feel that all the time. Just, just this yearning to have some control and to get, be able to have some power in my life. So I'm very moved by that prayer, even if I don't subscribe to the theology. So I think there's a lot that can be done with our liturgy. What shouldn't be done is for us to mindlessly recite it. So clearly the answer to the question is yes, you have connected the dots. You've, you've, you've done the work of... Yeah, of, with, some, with not, not, not enough, right? I haven't well. done it with the whole sitter. I, I have a lot of work to do, but I think with... Some of the main prayers, I really, I have done, tried to do the work to make it meaningful. And look, that takes time. You know, I don't, I don't judge anyone for not having the time to do this. It is hard, right? It is hard. And that's actually, that's why I wrote my book. I wanted to say to people, look, here's what I found that can help you work with the sitter or work with theology or ethics. Because you, you don't have time. You're raising yeah, kids. Right. You're taking it's, for, right. you know, right. I wanted to distill it and make it easier for people because it is, it's tough. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars. Unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. 
I want to move uh, now to some more political questions, in particular about Israel. But I want to I want to draw from your own professional and personal experience in the Obama administration. As a primer, help us out, understand what isn't obvious to us about the way Israel is discussed, queried, investigated, engaged in the purely secular uh political realm, which in your case is at the highest uh, level in, in the White House, um, and compare and contrast that, if you would, to your experience of how Israel is critiqued, engaged, queried, etc., in the internal American Jewish conversation about Israel. So I worked for the First Lady, <laughs> so I never worked on Israel. That wasn't an issue she worked on, so I can't really speak to any of that. You know, what I can say is that I find it very frustrating when people say, well, what about Israel? No one has ever once said to me, well, Sarah, what about America? Because they actually understand America as an entire country with a diverse group of people, industries, with a history, with cultures, languages, you know, it's a country. And when people ask me, what about Israel? Um, I get it. Right? I know what they're saying. They're sure. saying, what about the conflict, the Israel conflict between Israelis and Palestinians? Are they asking you your opinion, your position? Yeah. And, and <clears> I, <throat> I will tell you, I find it infuriating that they have somehow reduced, we've somehow reduced the entire country of Israel, which has a diverse population, all kinds of industries, histories, cultures, languages. We've reduced it to a modern political conflict. I think a more, a question I have more to say about is the understanding of Israel and the discussion in the sort of the insider Jewish community that 20 20, 25% of really engaged insider Jews who live and breathe this and the vast majority of American Jews. And um, I just, I've now spoken to thousands of people. I've answered hundreds of questions. Um, I can count on one hand the number of questions I've gotten on Israel and anti-Semitism combined. The insider Jewish world is obsessed with those two topics. And I get it. I totally understand it because these are the folks who are regularly going to synagogues and walking through terrifying security, right? These are folks who are wearing kippahs and actually feeling some real and very well-justified fear, sadly. These are folks for whom Israel is central to their identity. Of course, they're going to talk about Israel and anti-Semitism, right? That makes perfect sense. That is central to their Judaism, their identity. For the majority of American Jews, it's not what they're thinking about. And I, I worry that the institutionalized Jewish world, by focusing so heavily, almost exclusively, frankly, on these two topics, you're losing the rest of us. Right? Judaism is a 4,000-year tradition that has some of the most profound wisdom on how to be human, that has holidays, rest, rituals, ethics, theology, languages, culture. We can go on and on. And to sort of boil that all down to Judaism equals anti-Semitism plus Israel, of course those two things are central, but what about the rest of Judaism? Ask the average American Jew, do you know what anti-Semitism is? Of course. Do you know what Israel is? Of course. Do you know what Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are? Yes. Jewish New Year, Day of Opponent. Great. What does Judaism say about how to be a genuinely good person? Social justice. Okay, that's every religion. Thanks. But we actually have millions of pages of commentary that's specifically Jewish and actually quite wise. What does Judaism say about God? Man in the sky, I'm screwed up, but not huh. religious. No. What does Judaism say about what happens after you die? I don't know. Heaven, no. Okay. Three most important questions any human being asks about their life. And the average American Jew can't even articulate a three-year-old level answer. I... Don't have any reason to disagree with you. It does um, evoke another question, a follow-up that mm -hmm. I had. I listened to a uh, story. Um, it was a podcast, actually. Mm -hmm. I remember. It was the arc of a sort of uh, recovered evangelist, a, a person who had grown up 
super Christian evangelist and actually evangelized. <clears throat> and then, for whatever reason, abandoned that. And he tells uh, the story of going to college and being in a mainstream college and being a, a, evangelizing Christians. It's, it's very hard on them because in mainstream colleges, of course, people are resistant to that. Um, but he did say that um, he was he was the most skilled person he knew at it, and he could really make inroads with everybody. The only two populations he could not make inroads with were gay people and Jews. <laughs> On the one hand, let's stipulate what you said about uh, you know a kind of troubling ignorance. Uh, on the part of Jews about their own tradition. And then on the other hand, this apparently this evangelist was functioning in that in the mm -hmm. population that we're saying, you know, could, has a lot to learn. And yet they appeared to have some wellspring of identity um, strength. Mm -hmm. What do you think about those two yeah. things uh, coexisting? Well, I can understand why the gay people would resist it since the evangelical Christian community has not been particularly yes. supportive of gay people, so that makes sense. As for Jews, yeah, I think lots of people, I mean, the Pew survey says that, what, 93, 94% of American Jews feel proud to be Jewish. Right. That's wonderful, right? They're culturally Jewish. They do Chinese food on, on Christmas. That's wonderful. And what are they passing down to their kids? Your feeling? Is that what we're passing down? Like a, a vague feeling of pride and slight persecution? That's sad. We have 4,000 years of the most profound wisdom about how to live a beautiful, meaningful life filled with gorgeous rituals and holidays and strong communities and families, and you're, you're going to pass on a vague feeling of pride and persecution. And Chinese food on Christmas. And Chinese food on Christmas. <laughs> so I think, you know, I'm guessing that the Jews just weren't that impressed by what was being offered to them, to be totally honest, right? I think they probably were a little challenged by maybe the theology being presented, and also they have that sense of pride, right? That sense of being proud to be Jewish. But if you ask them why, what are they going to say? Oh, social justice, I, I, proud heritage, we've survived a long time, they tried to kill us, but we're still here. What, what are they going to say? What are they proud of? Right? I just, you know, it, it might be enough now. In a generation or two, I'm not sure where that is, right? We've made a bet actually on that feeling. Like we've made a bet on, on a kind of, I hate this term, but because I think it, it's a nonsense term, but on ethnic Judaism. Not a thing. Jews are every ethnicity, every race, but increasingly so. Yeah, increasingly so. And so, you know, we've really focused on that idea. It's almost we've almost tried to make Judaism into an American ethnicity, like being Irish or Italian, which is great. And who cares about being Irish or Italian now? Tiny little ethnic neighborhoods here and there. Hundred years ago, people cared a lot about that. You're Irish. Your daughter marries an Italian. Oh my God! End of days. Who cares now? No one. No one. We're getting there now, right? We put the bet on peoplehood, identity, feeling Jewish, kishkis, we're persecuted, we're proud. That's a three, four generation bet. And now we're getting to the we're getting to that third and fourth generation. And it it sends chills down my spine when someone says, Well, I'm Jewish by heritage. Jewish by heritage. I'm culturally Jewish. I don't know anything about Judaism. I don't do anything Jewish, but I'm Jewish by heritage. I'm proud. That's Irish or Italian, is what I think that is. So I, you know. I'm guessing that that was strong enough to resist the evangelists now. I don't know if a next generation, generation after that, it will be. Well, uh, clearly you're doing the work uh, to, to not find out that way. To, to <laughs> exactly. Ahead. Trying. We'll see. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, lessons you learned uh, in the presence of great leaders and yeah. uh, what it meant to you. Because I want to ask, this may not be actually the case, but right. I think... There was a sequence in your life where the, your work uh, with the administration was prior to your choice to excavate your Judaism. 
So my work in the administration was both prior to and during my learning about Judaism. I started learning about, you know, I was in the administration from 2009 to 2017. I started learning about Judaism around 2014. So sort of like midway there. Um, you know, I working for the Obamas was the greatest honor and privilege of my life. And I think I, I worked mostly for Mrs. Obama, so I'll sort of speak to her. The greatest lesson I learned from her is just the power of saying something true and just being relentlessly true to who you are, right? I, I just think she was always asking herself, you know, what's true here? Like, what is the real beating heart truth of this situation? And you can't necessarily blurt that out. You have to be thoughtful about how you're, you know, sharing that with people so that it will be received. But she was really thinking, like, what's true for me here? And, she, you know, and I, I just so appreciated that. And there were so many times where it was like, People would say, well, you know, this is what first ladies do. This is how they do it. And she'd say, I'm not a generic first lady, right? Like, I, I, I'm me, and, I'm, and we're going to think about this. Like, this silly ribbon-cutting ceremony that first ladies do. Okay, I'll do that, but we're going to invite a bunch of kids from inner city D.C., and they're going to come in, and they're going to be part of it, and we're going to talk about the history of this, and they're going to come to the White House, and we're going to have speakers from throughout the White House come and be with them. That's how we're doing this. I just thought, like, you know, it was really impressive to see her just constantly – standing her own ground, speaking her own truth. And I think that that's something I've carried with me you know, as I'm doing the work of, of promoting a book. Sometimes people will say, oh, I want you to be on stage with this person and do this. And I'll say, that's not what I do. You know, when people say, I want you to come and have to debate about Israel with someone, that's not what I do. It's not what my book's about. That's not what I do. I'm not interested. Or let's talk about the sociology of the Jewish people. I'm not a sociologist, right? I'm not an academic. I, that's not what I do. Or come do, you know, be a scholar in residence and teach I'm not qualified to do that, right? I'm very clear, like, here is what I do. I am a, just a Jew in the pew, often not in the pew, yeah. who learned deeply about Judaism and wanted to share what I found with Jews like me. That's what I do. And I think just being fierce about being loyal to sort of what I offer and who I am and not trying to be anyone else, um, that's something I learned from her. And there's that is part of your arc of finding Judaism, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I, you know... I found Judaism totally randomly. You know, I broke up with a guy I was dating. I had time on my hands. I was bored and lonely. I was not in, you know, I was on some big spiritual journey. I didn't think Judaism was going to, you know, solve my existential pro problems. I was bored, right? I happened to hear about intro to Judaism class. I took it figuring, well, I'm Jewish by heritage. I should know about my heritage. I was the Jewish by heritage person five years ago. That was me. And taking this class and then many classes, reading many books, studying with rabbis since then, I've come to realize, like, wow, what an impoverished Judaism that was, right? What, an, what, a, what a sad, thin, lame Judaism that was, right? We have such transformative wisdom that just infuses my life every day. And, you know, having, you know, I'm really lucky that I, I can afford to buy books, right? I can afford to take classes. I have these options. But I wrote my book because I know people are so busy and they don't have the time and they don't necessarily have the money to take a class. So I just, it's like, okay, all you have to just read this book to get started. You know, that's all I just, if, you, if you're going to do nothing else, just, just will you just read this and maybe get as excited as I am about this? Maybe. We'll see. Well, I'm glad that podcasts uh, is one of the <laughs> things that you do do and that we've gotten the benefit <laughs> of your time and your energy and passion. Thank you, Thank you and all good things. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the College Commons Podcast, produced and edited by Jennifer Howd, and brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. For this URJ Biennial series, special thanks to Mark Palavin, the URJ Chief Program Officer and Biennial Director, and Liz Grumbacher, Director of North American Events. 
We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.